Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Bivens Point. If you're like me, you may not think about senior health care at all until it's time to help parents or grandparents make those kinds of decisions. But when that time comes, turn to Bivens, a long-trusted name for senior health care in Amarillo. Bivens Point delivers a personal treatment plan and a caring, dignified experience. And I know because both of my Amarillo grandparents spent time there. Learn more at BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E. Today's guest is Becca White. Becca is a trained jeweler and a silversmith. She's the artisan and entrepreneur behind M Street Studio, which produces jewelry and other affordable fashion accessories here in Amarillo and sells them literally all over the world. Becca's products have been featured in magazines like Vogue, Vanity Fair, GQ, and other big-time publications in the fashion world. And her world headquarters is here in Amarillo. I love stories like this, and I enjoyed talking to Becca about how she got started, why she decided to relocate her business to Amarillo after living in Dallas and Austin, and how a local craftsperson ended up getting visibility in New York's biggest fashion publications. So here's Becca White. Becca White, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, good. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, And I I know eventually we'll be talking about jewelry and the different things that you're involved with, uh, your your handmade work. But the, the first thing I like to do is establish how you ended up here in Amarillo. So tell me what brought you to this area in the first place. Right. Well, I was born and raised here. Okay. My parents live here. My grandparents lived here. And so... I, you know, I've, I've been here, but I left Amarillo to go to school in Lubbock. I went to Texas Tech. Okay. And then after I graduated from Tech, I moved to Austin. And then after Austin, I moved to Dallas. And then after Dallas, I boomeranged back to Amarillo. So, and when we moved back here, my husband had just finished law school, the job market for lawyers in Austin or Dallas, either one really were not that great. It's a lot of competition and there. So yeah, it was a lot of competition and it was a, a time where there were a lot of lawyers that had just graduated, a lot of people looking for jobs and it was just kind of a crazy market. So it just kind of made sense for us to move back here. I was pregnant at the time. Okay. I was already pregnant and we hadn't been married all that long, but it just made sense to be back here. He quickly found a job here that was like a really great fit for him. And my parents are still here. So having people here to help me raise up my daughter sounded really nice yeah. at the time. <laughs> so, and still nice. And it's still yeah. nice. Yeah, it's still great to have my parents around. Did, did so. you Do you remember like growing up here, going to high school here? I mean, were you one of those kids that was like, I got to get out of Amarillo as quickly as I can? I mean, was that part of your plan or? Mm, not really. I mean, I like Amarillo. I liked growing up here, you know, and I don't think I never was someone that was like, oh, I want to be so super far away, mm-hmm. you know, but it was good for me to, to go to tech and I could still come back home if I wanted to come back and see my parents, you know, on a weekend or something I could do that it was far enough away that it gave me some space to be myself and kind of grow into my own person, but still feel connected to home. Right. Uh, and then after that, after, you know, I graduated, it just, I was single and it just didn't, that was not the right time to move back here, I don't think. And so my sister lived in Austin and moving to Austin was just was like, yes, I'm going to move to Austin right. and that's going to be great. <laughs> Having lived in in those other places, you know, in larger cities and, and Austin and Dallas are both very different from each other. But like, did, did that sort of change your perspective when you came back to Amarillo? to sort of resettle here, I mean, having been in, in those larger places? Yeah, I think definitely. Uh, it made me appreciate a lot of things about Amarillo that I didn't really even notice before. You know, I mean, just being able to go out to eat and not have to wait an enormous amount of time to get a table. You know, the traffic is obviously much easier here mm-hmm. to deal with. You're not in these huge long commutes. My commute that I had when I lived in Austin was crazy. I was commuting for at least an hour, sometimes an hour and a half each way every day, every day to work and every day back home again. I was in the car for an hour and a half. Wow. So that 
really is an eye opener when you come back here and you're like, wow, it's so easy to get around here and I can go here and I can do 10 different things in an hour and be done with everything I need to do. Tell me where you went to high school here in Amarillo. I went to Amarillo High. Okay. Mm -hmm. And were you involved at Amarillo High in like creative stuff? I mean, did you... Did you take art classes or jewelry classes, some of those things that, that you can do? Yeah, I, I took art, and then I took jewelry at Amarillo High uh, with Mr. McSwain. Okay. And it was phenomenal. I mean, it was I talked to almost no one who has an opportunity to do the type of jewelry work that we did in high school. It was really a college-level class. We were doing fabric. Like even talking to people who are in that world. Yeah, now in the industry. And, yes. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, industry professionals across the board. When I tell people I got to take a jewelry class in high school where we were doing casting and fabricating and soldering and polishing and sawing, like all of the fundamentals of jewelry, you just don't talk to people who had that opportunity in high school. Hmm. And you know, and being in Amarillo, having that opportunity here when I was, you know, 15, 16 years old was a game changer, you know. But I've always been involved in the arts. I think anybody who has known me since I was really tiny would say that I'm kind of a quirky artist, okay. I don't know, type character. I did a lot of performing arts when I was younger. I grew up here doing Lone Star Ballet and, okay. and did ballet all the way through high school from the time I was probably two or three till I graduated. Um, and then theater and musicals and stuff also. So I've, I've been involved in a lot of that. And then also just constantly making things since the time I was like six or something. <laughs> what, what did you do at Texas Tech? What, uh, what did you study there? I studied biology and chemistry. Okay. I, I have a, my degree is in biology. And did you like end up after that doing anything in those fields? Yeah, I did. After when I went to tech, um, after I graduated, I, I had done actually a lot of research at tech and then I was involved in a research project that was after tech. Uh, my research was in Big Bend National Park. So, wow. Uh, I a went, great place to do research. Yeah, it was great. And I actually got to go down there and live down there for months at a time um, in research housing and really outdoorsy. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was so it was just really great being very it's a little bit isolating, yeah. which can be good for me. It, it gave me an opportunity to learn a lot of things when I was down there and draw and dream and just all kinds of things. So um, that was kind of a, a cool part of doing biology. And then after I graduated from tech, I went to, uh, when I moved to Austin, I, the first job I got was with an orthodontist and I got a job as an orthodontic technician. Okay. And part of, I got that job because I had this biology background and you know, had, had studied, I had all the prereqs to pass the test really quickly and things like that. So, but another reason that I got that job was because I had listed jewelry making on my resume. You could do the soldering and all yes. the metal work. And all <laughs> yes. That. And so I, he hired me and I, you know, passed the test that I needed to do. And then he immediately put me in the lab. So I was working in the, in the lab. We did a lot of in-house like retainers and uh, mouth guards and all kinds of crazy pallet you know, spreaders and stuff that we were making in-house. And so all of that was using and really honing these, yeah. my skills of, of soldering and cutting and fabricating. And there was also all this equipment there that I got to use. We had casting equipment there. We had, you know, vacuum casting equipment and all kinds of stuff that was just, you don't get to experience or, or kind of play with that equipment. Yeah unless you're in the field doing something like that. But all of those things are transferable to jewelry making. So I spent a lot of time doing that. But I got, that was part of my biology kind of path, I guess. Is, so. is that path, maybe not the biology part, but like, you know, the, the metalworking that you got to do for an orthodontist, like, is that something that other people making jewelry have in their background? I mean, is, is that common or does it seem really strange like it does to me? Because I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't think of it in that. No. I'm like, oh, it is the same kind of stuff. It's just for a different purpose. But Yeah, it's very transferable knowledge and skills. I don't know if there's a lot of people that, that do that. I know, I mean, some of the other guys that worked in the lab were hobbyists where they they did stuff with circuit boards and other things right. that required soldering so they knew how to do things like that but not necessarily yeah. jewelry. Orthodontia to jewelry is not a traditional I don't path. think I don't think that's a traditional path, no. Um, so, so tell me about how, you know, at, 
with that experience, how your um, your jewelry making really started to become this is what I'm going to do. So after I worked at the Orthodontic Center, I went into teaching and I started teaching science after that. So okay. I taught um, in, I taught in public schools, at private schools, and at a charter school. Um, and I, all, during all that time, I was living in Austin, and my boyfriend, who later became my husband, was living in Dallas. So I had a lot of free time on my hands <laughs> because he was gone. I was in Austin by myself and needed, you know, to keep myself sure. busy. So I would work during the day at school, and then as soon as I would leave school, I would go. I was taking classes. Uh, I was making things. I rented space in a, in a co-op in Austin that was a, a co-op maker space where we had a lot of equipment that everyone could use and just really was a sponge for knowledge. You know, everybody I could find that had some little piece of learning something, I was on it and I wanted to know what they knew. I wanted to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And so during that time, I was just building all of these skills. Um, but building skills costs money. (laughs) So I was spending a lot of money taking classes and then trying to buy materials to make things with. And it costs money to rent my space in the co-op. All of these things were costing money. And so, and I was on a teacher salary. Right. So it became clear that I need to start selling things so that I can at least just break even here, Right. you know, or I mean, break even was kind of a a high goal. <laughs> it was more just recoup some of the money that I was spending to to fuel all the things I was doing. But you still saw it as like a hobby. I mean, yeah, something yeah. that you were kind of interested in and learning and passionate about, but yes, you had a job. Right. I had a, jo- I had a full-time job and it was just something I wanted to start on the side and kind of build and, and really just recoup some of the, the costs that I was sinking into things. And so that it kind of started like that. And honestly, what M Street is now I could never have dreamt that it would be that then because the tools and platforms and things that have made it possible for M Street to be what it is were not even available then. So if you were going to be a maker or an artist or something like that, which I already, I always kind of had that in me of I wanted to do that, but to think that I could do it full time was just not something that was even in the realm, I'm, I might as well have said, like, I want to be a professional tightrope walker. Right. You know, I mean, it was, if you were going to do that as a living, it was like you were traveling around to trade shows, you were hitting the holiday markets. If you could get in, you were doing pop-ups and, and things like that. And that was like living in your car. Right. And that and that's was not your, something you can do with another job. No, you can't do that with another job. And quitting my job to go to that was kind of a, a scary yeah. thought, you know? So uh, things just kind of continued to to move along, and and then you know more sales kind of started coming in, and more sales kind of started coming in, and at some point it was kind of just like I don't know. I think that this is the right time to to make the switch, and so I just did. And and when you say more sales were coming in, like did you were you selling on a website at that point? I mean, it, it was had moved beyond just like person to person. I'm gonna you know, go set up a booth somewhere. Right, right, yeah. So I had done trade shows and, and all, I'd done all that too. Like I went to holiday markets, I sold in person, I did all of that. Um, but in 2005 was when Etsy started. Okay. And so 2000, I had just, was just finishing up school in 2005 and getting ready to move to Austin. And so I joined Etsy pretty quickly after it kind of started. right really getting some traction. And so the sales that were coming in were coming in on Etsy. And Etsy w- Etsy itself was really starting to build things and build the platform and build in all these features. And because I was an early adopter of that, I really got in on it quickly at the beginning. I was there for all of that. Okay. So their gains were my gains too. Right. And so tell me when you started, you got to that point where you thought, okay, this is a thing that I needs to become more than a hobby. Like, what did that mean for you? Like, did, did it mean, okay, now I'm going to quit my job and, and dedicate to this full time? Or do you start hiring people? I and mean, what does that look like? Well, I mean, it was a long, I, it was a long time before I quit my job. Um, I was basically just working two full-time jobs, okay. like selling and, and making things was enough to be more than a full-time job in the hours I was putting into it. 
but then I I was not I was still working my other job too. And all the um, making is just you, right? I mean, did you have anybody helping you with the actual production part of it? In the beginning, not at all. Now things have shifted. Things look a lot different now than they did right. in the early days. Um, but in the beginning, it was all me, and I was doing everything. Like, I mean, I was making my own jump rings. Like, and I don't, if you don't know anything about jewelry, that doesn't really resonate with anybody. But like, not only was I making all of it, but I was making the pieces to okay. put it together. Individual too. parts. Indi- that- individual parts. I mean, I was doing all the metal smithing, everything. I mean, that's a lot. So, you know, and I kept, I really kept another job for a long, long time. I mean, even now still, I actually still work part-time for my dad. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know if it ever, it's still something that's always a little bit like feels iffy. I don't know, but, um, you know, it just has become more and more and more and more and more. And now it's, it's a full-time job plus like two more full-time jobs. Okay. So, <laughs> so tell people, if, if people don't know M Street right now, um, tell them like what it is and, and sort of where your business has ended up. How many customers are you selling to or how many pieces are you creating? I mean, what, what's the breadth of it right now? Right. I don't even... I hardly ever have that conversation with people because it's And I don't need like crazy. sales figures right. or anything like but that. But and, and it's uh, because we, so currently we, I do enormous amounts of wholesale, massive volume. We are available in 29 states. We have 61 stockists across the nation okay. that we supply wholesale to. So it is, and we, I really just mean me. It's not, there's really still no one yeah, else. Yeah, you, you don't have like a factory where <laughs> no, there's things no factory. are being churned out. It just, and, and it's funny because over time you just kind of start referring to yourself as, as we. As we, as third person. <laughs> I, I do that with a podcast, you know. Um, but really it's not, it's just me. But yeah, so we are, we are serving a really wide breadth of uh, product. Um, and then in addition to all of the wholesale, so that's just the wholesale. And side. those are like sold like through boutiques and boutiques, places like that that order yes. it and then mm-hmm. sell it to their customers. Yes, but okay. also other online retailers, retailers okay. and things like that. A lot of it is e-commerce, but then it's also just in-person boutiques and things like that. Okay. So that is a massive volume of orders that is just constantly coming in and constantly going out. And we're talking volume, you know, like a lot of volume. Is it, is it like this week I need to make 500 of these earring styles? Yes. I mean, is, is that yes. what it looks like? Okay. Yeah, that's what it looks like. All right. Sometimes it's more than that. You should not be doing this podcast. <laughs> you need to go back to work. Yeah. I mean, right. sometimes it is there and it's crazy because it's not, it's retail and it's not always that consistent. I mean, some weeks it is crazy and I feel totally flooded Mm -hmm. with the things that are going on. And then other weeks, it's kind of just, you know, like here and there and something in between kind of, you know? So it's just, there's an ebb and flow to it a little bit, but it's not predictable and it can be a little bit erratic. Um, A lot of the wholesale stuff I'm still adjusting to in a really big way. All of this growth has happened more or less in the last 18 months, maybe. Okay. A lot of the growth. And... So it's, there's still some growing pains that I'm trying to sort out and work through and figure things out. But then in addition, so that's wholesale. Right. And then in addition to that, we also have all of our e-commerce stuff. So with the wholesale, there's also a lot of our own retail that is coming in through our e-commerce site. So there's all of those orders. And too. those orders are international. <laughs> those I orders are international. They We ship everywhere. I mean, really everywhere. Like just all over the map. <laughs> and your products have expanded from, I guess, jewelry is where you started, and now there's leather goods and stuff involved? Yeah, well, leather actually came in quite a while ago, okay. but and it was interesting because it came in, I started doing leather early on because when I was in Austin, the market is really tough. Uh, it's very competitive to get into like these holiday shows and trade shows and things like that around Austin. It's very competitive. And for you to get in, you are displacing someone else. Okay. And so early when I was in Austin still and trying to work and do these shows, um, I couldn't get in. And I kept applying and I would get turned down and I would apply and get turned down with my jewelry. Um, Because jewelry is just, there's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of it at these shows. I mean, you're talking tons of people and lots of applicants. So it's really competitive. And I could never get in. And uh, I just kept trying. And one day, this lady who was in charge of kind of 
fielding people for these shows and things. I got in a conversation with her and I was telling her, you know, I've applied to all these, I've applied, but I can't get in. What should I be doing different? Do I need to do my photos different? Do I need to do this different? Um, and she goes, well, what else can you make besides jewelry? Hmm. And, uh, I hadn't really ever even thought about it. (laughs) So, um, said retainers, retainers. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't think those would be a hot, hot seller. So I gave it some thought and I was like, well, I don't know. And she said, you know, we have a leather worker that dropped out of a show. Can you make, can you make anything out of leather? And I, Kind of thought, I mean, at the moment, I immediately just said, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Yep. And she goes, okay, great. You're in then. And and that was it. And so then I just went home and went to Tandy and (laughs) just kind of started figuring it out. And things weren't that great in the beginning, but then they got better. Hmm. (laughs) So that's kind of how leather worked its way in. And then all of a sudden it was, I'm a bag maker. So Mm -hmm. tell me, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about... The process, you know, you, you talked about the tools that were available to reach the public and how mm-hmm. that has changed with Instagram and some of those different technologies. Tell me how you were able to use that, you know, to grow beyond the trade show world and, and to start, you know, being in 29 different states. And um, I, I know that your products have appeared in Vogue and Vanity Fair and places like that. So, so tell me how that growth happens and how you sort of figured your way around, you know, a a new social network like that. It is, we're in the wild west of marketing right now. And I feel like that every day because there's Mm -hmm. just new things every day. There's, you know, it's very much a a landscape of shifting sands. You never know which way things are going to be moving the next day. So it's just, you know, there's been a lot of learning curves and things like that. But I got on Instagram. I was kind of really against Facebook. Um, Like when I was in college and stuff, I didn't really want anything to do with Facebook. I felt very private and I didn't want to be on Facebook. So I didn't have a Facebook account. And Instagram came along in 2010. So I should, to put it in perspective. So I put, I started M street in 2007. Okay. So uh, Instagram came on around in 2010 and I wasn't, right in the beginning of Instagram, I actually got on it later because I liked the filters that they had as options, you know, for pictures. And so that's kind of why I started getting on it. And then, and even in those early days, it wasn't used for, for businesses, you know, it was just pictures of people's kids and like dogs and stuff. And then there became like a very, um, identifiable shift on there toward businesses and towards small businesses. And I think, getting on that quickly, um, recognizing things that makes your content attractive to other people. Um, so I think one of the things that I did that was a huge step toward really pivoting, uh, social media toward my favor was getting a professional photographer to start taking product photos. Uh, and this was a big change. And I hired a photographer and she has been great. Our visions really align with what, you know, we want the product to look like and how we want the product shots to be set up and things like that. And plus there's a consistency from one photo to the next yes. that establishes your brand, an identity and yes. a brand. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to be, all of this has to be very consistent. Um, you want your brand identity to be very recognizable. You want your photos to be recognizable. And so getting her on board and then really having a collaboration with her of making pictures that are beautiful and compelling, but also will sell product. Right. Because it doesn't matter how many people like your picture. If you're not selling anything off of it, you you might as well just be putting up a pretty, I mean, that's all you're doing is just yeah. putting out a pretty picture. So really working on conversion from that. The press that I've gotten in the last 18 months has been crazy. And it really started with Etsy. Okay. Because Etsy, I I still, even though I have my own website and we run a lot of, most of the business I run is actually through our own standalone e-commerce site. I still maintain an Etsy shop uh, because it has great reach. It has incredible exposure. All of these are, it's a numbers game. I mean, all of this stuff is stuff. I just maximizing maximizing eyeballs that you can get in front of. That's right. And I'm con I'm a numbers person. I'm constantly looking at numbers, extremely analytical. I mean, I have a really strong science background that has played forward into my current career. Uh, I'm constantly looking at data 
all the time from all of these different places, from Etsy, from Instagram, from Facebook. I'm looking at all of those analytics, all of the metrics to try to play the game the best. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, Etsy is a great platform and I've maintained this like Etsy presence. And um, on 4th of July last year, so 2018, 4th of July, we had been out, we'd been celebrating. I hadn't even picked up my phone. We got back from shooting fireworks and it was, you know, one o'clock in the morning, opened my phone up, opened my email, and it was just pages and pages and pages and pages of Etsy orders. Wow. And which is unusual. Yeah. So, and it was all for the same product. One pair of earrings, like tons of orders, one pair of individual orders for Mm -hmm. this one pair of earrings. And, you know, immediately I was like, what? Something happened. Yeah, what happened? Something has happened. And so I start looking, you know, digging in my email. What was it this? Because you just don't know. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that can be a trigger like that. And I have seen upticks in sales and other things, but not quite to this level. Um, just from like a blogger who might right. mention you on or something or a celebrity or whatever. Yeah. There's many, you know, a lot of things. So anyway, I looked back at my email and I had been featured in the Etsy 4th of July maker email. Okay. This p- particular pair of earrings. And Etsy has an enormous reach. And if the price point's right, it just clicks. And then that's it. Like, so that was kind of the the tip of the domino. And then it was just after that. So Etsy, the Etsy email, it goes out to literally billions of people. Okay. You know, billions with a B. And from that, it was the magazines. You know, I mean, it started with Vanity Fair. And then it, when, when I got that email from Vanity Fair saying that they wanted to include me in a feature... I thought it was spam. I really did. I thought I was like, this is a joke. Like, this is like some kind (laughs) of something that's trying to get my credit card information. Like, where's the, what's the catch here? And ended up, you know, emailing back and it was real. I mean, it was, it was so unbelievable to me. Like at that moment when I was getting the email and reading and all of these things happening and it just happens so fast. And it happened that. organically. I mean, it, it yes. was a lot of people in your position will hire a publicist and try to get their product in the hands of editors or people making those decisions. And mm-hmm. yours just kind of happened. Mm-hmm. And once it gets, once you get in one magazine, then your exposure is really high after yeah. that. And so then all the magazines, you know, it was Vanity Fair and then GQ, then Vogue, L, you know, D Magazine did a feature on me. Um, I mean, it's it's just it just balloons into something that's beyond what you could even ever expect. So, do you feel like you're still in the process right now, where the balloon's getting bigger and you're you're not sure like where it's going to end up? <laughs> I mean, are are you making plans now to continue the growth? Or are you still like feel like you're trying to just maintain and, and keep up with things? Uh, I'm definitely making plans to continue the growth. And things are expanding all the time. We're getting new retailers every week. The growth is still very steady and upwards. And um, I'm just trying to make sure that I'm set up to handle what is coming. Because this is kind of not that known about me. But I had another label besides M Street. So I have my M Street label that is accessories, jewelry, bags. Uh, Several years ago, I started another label that was actually a pet label. Okay. And it was pet products that was called Squirrel and Bird. A and great name. Great, great names. Yeah. And uh, it was a, it was a great product line. But um, so I started this label and I was going to make these dog collars that were really funky, neat, bright colors and out of neat leather. And this was when things were still very small. Like M Street was steady. Business was good, but it was manageable. It not, you know, I thought I was busy. I had no idea yeah, really yeah. what busy looked like. But in comparison to now, but M Street was good. And this was just kind of a little side project that I wanted to do because, and it didn't fit with the M Street brand. So that's why I started the separate label for it. So I started the label for Squirrel and Bird and made these collars, took pictures, had them on on Etsy, started an Instagram for it. Mm -hmm. You know, it had all the things. And, you know, we were selling collars. It was things were going pretty good and collars were going out all over everywhere and I was feeling pretty good about things. And then I got featured in a, a magazine, a pet like style magazine, the callers did. And this was like the things that happened after that were shocking because it was the same thing. This all of a yeah. sudden, this balloon, I had wholesale requests. I had 
you know, other press requests, all of these other things. And so I started, you know, when the first wholesale order came in, I was like, okay, great. Sounds good. We'll do it. You know, and then it was another and another, and it became clear very, very quickly that this was a not, it was not a scalable product at all. Like I had way underpriced it. Um, and so then by the time I was selling it at wholesale, I was making no money on it or I mean like negligible amount, but working an enormous amount to make basically no money. And so it became very clear that this was not a sustainable path. So I filled all the wholesale orders I had and then I shut the label down. Really? Yes. Because it was just not, it wasn't viable. It wasn't a viable product. It wasn't a viable label. Like I couldn't, I couldn't outsource the work because I wasn't making enough money on it. I couldn't raise the price because the amount that I had underpriced it was so far apart that Mm -hmm. it would have been, you know, I couldn't, you just couldn't do it. You couldn't raise the price that much without just cutting your own throat. You know, it was better to just, just end it. So that's what I did. And after that happened, it became clear to me that like these things can happen where lightning can strike. Yeah. And I was not prepared for success at all. I had lots of contingency plans of what would happen if it didn't work out. What am I going to do with these materials if this doesn't sell? What am I going to do? You know, how am I going to make this work? Lots of plans on that. No plan at all of what would happen if If it it took off, if it worked. I was not in any way prepared for success on that. And when that happened, I told myself, I will never do this again. I will never, ever let this happen again. And because I, this was it, like I lightning struck, I wasn't prepared for it and I dropped the ball and it, it was honestly, it's like fishing when it's like the one that gets away is going to haunt you the rest of your life, you know? And I just, from that moment on, it changed how I structured my business entirely because, and it changed how I structured M street because M street was still very viable and going and things were working. And you know, it, I reassessed all of my pricing. I reassessed all of like the labor went back through, ran all the numbers on everything because I was never going to let that happen again, where it was like, I got set up for success and I was not prepared to take the ball and run with it. So I think that having that experience before Mm -hmm. this happened made it where this is possible. Okay. So, so you feel like now you're you're fulfilling orders, but you're also preparing for what could happen as yes. it continues to grow. Absolutely. And like I'm totally trying to make sure that everything is set up for the success plan, you know, and ready to take orders. We, I have really streamlined all of my processing, sourcing. I mean, all of that is in place. It was in place from the beginning, even if nothing happened, all those things were still like in place just in case it did. And then it did. Yeah. So, um, and all of that has really paid off having all of that, all of those procedures in place, a plan in place of like, what if this blows up? And so now I'm just continuing trying to keep going down that road. Fashion is, is interesting because you're so many seasons ahead. So, mm-hmm. you know, right now we're selling fall, winter, but I am designing spring, summer of 2020. Okay. So, um, and those, tw- those designs will go into production in maybe two weeks. So it's, you know, you're, you're constantly yeah. looking ahead. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about being based in Amarillo. M Street actually started in Dallas. Is that right? Right. right. Uh, and then you you know, made the move. And I guess when you made the move, you relocated your headquarters and how you did production and all that stuff. I mean, yes. I, I understand that that coming to Amarillo was not the driving force. You know, you, it was a family decision, mm-hmm. but like what impact has that had? Are you just as able to do what you do here as you were in the Metroplex? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more so because of partially family reasons. Okay. Um, my family owns warehouses here, so that was uh, they own industrial All warehouse right. space. So, so you've that, got some workspace. So, so I have workspace that immediately made it um, easy, uh, and then I have my parents to help me with things. But it's just as easy. I mean, actually, it's really easier. The market here is not saturated. There's room for growth in Amarillo. And I think that that is something that is so valuable to a small business. Like you can't put a value on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, being somewhere that has room to, to accept more things and have more businesses and stuff is, is just so important when you're growing. And Amarillo has really been receptive. And honestly, when I came back here, there was 
you know, a network of women that I had grown up with here. Some of them I grew up with, and then some of them were people I met later, but they were incredibly supportive. You know, I mean, there's very much this feeling of like, we're taking in our own and Mm -hmm. we're going to raise this, raise up our own, you know? And I think that having that group of women here who were supportive of me and were quick to get on board with my brand, support my brand by buying things, but also just by being there, by showing up, you know, I mean, having that is huge. I didn't have that in Austin or Dallas. And so being able to be in Amarillo and have that is a big, big, big deal when you're kind of getting your business off the ground. And so even though, you know, your customer base is not confined to Amarillo, you know, your location doesn't Mm -hmm. matter in terms of reaching them, being located here is, is still kind of a big part of the identity of your business, or at least being able to do it like you've been able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way I could do what I've been doing living somewhere else. I mean, just in terms of the cost of having like a warehouse or something like Mm -hmm. that. Granted, I get a good deal on it because it's kind of within the family, but you know, it's expensive to have those type of facilities available to you in other places. Like the, when I was in Austin and I was renting a co-op space, I mean, I was paying a ridiculous, I was paying more for my co-op space than I paid for my living space. Wow. So if that puts that in in Austin, so that will put in perspective how costly it is. And that was to have like a, you know, three by three little like table in a a space that was jam packed with a bunch of other people in there. I mean, there's just no way that you can run production in something like that. Like it's really, I mean, you, you could, you could do it, but it's really hard and I probably couldn't do it at the scale that I'm doing it now. I mean, now we have, I basically have a shipping warehouse is what I have to have where we're pulling orders. We're filling orders. This table is for ones that are ready to go. I mean, it's, Takes a lot of space. <laughs> is, is there, you know, the, the fashion world, you mentioned how hard it is to get into it. Is is there any working from Texas or working from Amarillo, which is nobody sees it as, you know, the, a fashion mecca. Um, <laughs> it, does that hinder your ability to get in front of the right people? Or are they like, how, how could somebody be doing these fashionable things, you know, from a place that we haven't heard of? Or is it not matter at this point because things are, are so democratic, I guess, in that world? Uh, I think in the... Earlier days when M Street was younger, it was harder, you know, to do that. And people did pay a little bit more attention to where you were from. Are you, you know, is it from, where are you based out of? Are you based out of Dallas? Are you in New York? Are you in LA? And you really had to be in those places. Like Mm -hmm. the tools to make it where you could run a business like M Street from Amarillo were not available until really just a few years ago. So people did pay more attention to that, I think, just because they they thought that being in those bigger places kind of made it where you had a, an edge. It or validates. Yeah, it validates you what way. you're doing or something. Um, or you're, you're more serious about it mm-hmm. because you're living in those places. And now I don't know. I hardly ever have anybody even blink an eye when they tell me, you know, when, I, when they ask where I'm from and I say Amarillo, they're just like, oh. Okay. Like, I mean, it's just not even a blip on the radar. Um, some of the people I work with overseas, it's exotic yeah. and it's, you know, they're getting product from Texas and it's, they, you know, they ask me if I ride horses and mm-hmm. things like that, you know, and they're, if they're in like London and some of the, the, it's actually a selling point. It's a selling point. Yeah. It's a selling point. They think it, and they use it as a marketing tool there. Mm. They're like, this is product that's from Texas. Amarillo, Texas, you know, (laughs) it's kind of a big deal depending on where they are from. As I mentioned earlier, this episode is sponsored by Bivens Point and their sponsorship comes courtesy of my Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash heyamarillo. And this is a place where businesses or individual listeners like you can support the show on a monthly basis. So here are two things I want you to know. Number one, this podcast is free. I always want it to be free. Number two, I'm self-employed and I do work for clients at hourly rates. I charge by the hour. So producing this podcast every week takes up several hours of my time, which is why I get sponsors for the show. It, It helps me pay the bills. It makes this more than a weekly volunteer project for me. Well, Patreon lets you choose a support tier that helps me keep making Hey Amarillo week after week. So if you appreciate this free product, if you think it's valuable, 
uh, then you can support the show too for as little as what it takes to buy me a cup of coffee every month. So to learn more, go to patreon.com slash heyamarillo. That's Patreon with an E. Okay, I'm back with Becca White of M Street Studio. Becca, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. So I'm going to ask you eight straight questions as my guest. Your job is to answer those in whatever detail you want to. Most of these are questions that I've asked other people. So um, you're kind of adding to a, you know, a great quantity of, of different answers that uh, listeners will hear. So the first one, what's your favorite restaurant in Amarillo? This is a tough question for me <laughs> because I love food and I don't cook. So we eat out a lot Okay, as a family. I, my daughter and my husband and I, all of us, we eat out a lot. Um, but I love 575 okay. is a great go-to. And then close with 575 would be Indian Oven, okay, which I really like. <laughs> yeah, both of those uh, homegrown businesses, restaurants, and... Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. really good food. And delicious. Yeah. What's your favorite Amarillo street? You're named after a street, but as I understand, it's not you know, uh, an Amarillo street so, or mm-hmm. community of streets, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's a community of streets in Dallas is what M street is actually named after. We lived in the, in the M streets, which is a little neighborhood in Dallas. I actually looked up to see if there is an M street in Amarillo. Cause I thought maybe there was, but I guess there's not, not that I could find. So if there is, I would like someone to tell me that. Yeah, you can locate your business there. <laughs> locate and- it. Um, but I think probably Polk street, I think there's just such a cool vibe going on in downtown right now, you know, and I love being down there. My husband works downtown. So we go down and and eat Mm -hmm. downtown quite a bit. And it's just, I love seeing that downtown is doing all these cool things. And so I think probably Polk. What does this area have too much of? (sighs) Not all the time, but sometimes I feel like it has too much down talk about Amarillo. Okay. Um, And I hate hearing it when I do, because it really, it makes me sad, but I, and I hear it in business communities. I also hear it a lot kind of in more creative and art communities, people that say things, they're kind of like selling Amarillo short or not giving it a chance to try something. Cause what I hear is like, well, I would love to do this, but that would never work here. Or I can't do this because I live in Amarillo. Right. People just don't get it. I hear that one a lot too. That's the other one I hear a lot. And I don't think that that's true. You know, I mean, I just don't, I think a lot of things work here and I think people get a lot of, they get all kinds of concepts here. And I think that I hate hearing people not even give Amarillo the chance to try like it. Like before even trying, they've before talked even themselves trying. out of it. Yeah. They've talked themselves out of it before they even try. And, you know, people here, we're thirsty for it. Like we are ready for new things. And I think that the community here is is just primed right now for all kinds of growth in all different directions. And I hope to see that. So anytime I hear somebody say something like that, I'm really quick to say, no, 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 that's not true. Like you can do anything here. I'm you really running can. an international business with a global supply chain yeah. and I'm, I'm an Amarillo. That's you know, right. So. <laughs> exactly. You can do anything here. There's nothing that I think you could say would not work here okay. at this point. What does this area not have enough of? You know, one thing that I really miss about living in like Austin or Dallas is kind of like family music venues. I don't know. Um, We just don't have a lot of places here where I feel like I can take my daughter to go listen to music. So a lot of them are are like a bar setting. Yeah, they're like, yeah, they're like bar settings. Even some of the restaurants that have music playing there are not like super family friendly places, you know, and I feel like in Austin and Dallas, we had some really cool places that were fun to go to where I didn't have a family then, but I saw a lot of other families that were there with kids and stuff. And I always thought to myself, that's going to be so fun, but we don't really, I wish we had somewhere where I could take, she's seven. So, you know, it has to be somewhere that's like pretty family friendly for little kids. I don't, I haven't found anywhere like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? You know, whether you're talking to um, one of your retail customers as a wholesaler or, you know, working with somebody, you know, who's making a product for you in China. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you get questions about what is Amarillo like or where do you work? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people that are very interested to know what it's like because people from really far away, like people from other countries that I talk to, 
immediately think that it's like, you know, we're out here riding horses and it's very, very rural and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I always just, I feel like Amarillo is kind of a mountain town, but without the mountain, that's okay. what, that's what the feel. That's, I've not heard somebody describe it that way, but I, I get it. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's sense. kind of the feel that I get for, from it is everyone's very friendly. We have a really strong sense of, uh, community. We have a really strong sense of local, um, you know, feelings and local businesses and things. And that mountain towns, I feel like have that, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think we share a lot of that kind of feeling here. And, um, I think we also just, we really punch above our weight limit, you know, like yeah. we are weight class, like we're, we are a, a small to mid-sized town, but we really have a lot. We have great culture here. We have great food here. We have an art scene here. I don't know if you saw like Austin, the Austin monthly actually just had Amarillo as their travel destination yeah, I saw just that. recently. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe the word is getting out. Okay. <laughs> when was the last time, you know, speaking of the word getting out as a travel destination, when was the last time you went to the big Texan? Uh, actually not that long ago. Really? Yeah. We go to the big Texan a lot because my cousin who lives in, she, my cousin grew up here in Amarillo, but she lives in Switzerland now and she likes to go to the big Texan for her birthday Okay, and her birthday is in the summer. So we actually didn't go on her birthday this summer, but I have a cousin who has a YouTube channel and they travel around, they have nine kids and and travel Mm -hmm. around the country and they came through town and wanted to go to the Big Texan. So we took them to the big and all their kids to the Big Texan and we had this massive table with, you know, all these people at it and we were a total like spectacle. Yeah. And I imagine <laughs> if you were to get on YouTube and just start, you know, looking for the Big Texan as a hashtag or something, it would be all over the place. Yes. So many yeah. people traveling through that. Mm-hmm. They were filming, yeah. like they filmed for their YouTube channel um while they were there and Got a lot of footage and stuff, but it was pretty crazy. I mean, we, we were definitely causing a, a scene. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I think that kind of scene happens almost every day there. It's yeah. just good that you were involved in it with that, that one day. Uh-huh. Um, what's your favorite kind of Amarillo weather? I like extremes. So I like the really hot of the summer or I like when we have a ton of snow. Okay. Uh, I'm not really a big fall person. It's the light changes. And honestly, sometimes it kind of makes me depressed. (laughs) Seasonal Uh, affective disorder. Yes, I do. I really, I kind of do because I love the summer so much and I love spending time with my kid and just doing all the summer things. And so fall is kind of like, makes me feel a little bit sad, but I love like the deep winter when it's really snowy. And then I love the summer when it's really hot. Okay. Mm -hmm. And this is a a new question that I've been wanting to ask, you know, guests for a while. So I'll introduce it with you. What's your favorite local food truck? Well, I haven't, I don't feel like I've gotten the chance to try that many. Um, I love purple flamingo pops and I've tried several other food trucks that have been at events that I've gone to that have been great, but I haven't gone out really seeking to try Mm -hmm. the food trucks, but I think I really, I think I should because in the other cities that I've lived in, the food truck culture and kind of the community that is built around that is something that I really enjoyed. So yeah, we're, we're still at the very early stages, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it's a point where people will try one because it's at an event, but mm-hmm. like nobody's following a food truck around the city and figuring out via Instagram, where are they today? And, and I'm going to go there. You know, right, like, right. You don't have that that real passion for a particular dish or something yet. Yeah. but and, and also just from like a small business perspective, I think that food trucks are so important because it allows restaurateurs kind of a platform to try out in a micro setting before building out a space and doing all these other things that can cost extreme amounts of money. You know, you get an opportunity to try things out, try a menu out, see if this is what's for you. So I think that having that in a city is really good for the restaurant culture Mm -hmm. and restaurant selection and the people that are into food in the city. So I hope that that's something that we see more of and kind of gets built up here. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions. Becca, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So what's something that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Well, what I want to endorse is a Christmas Roundup. Okay. That's with the Amarillo Museum of Art. And it's something that's been around for a long time. I think a lot of people know about it already, but I just 
want to kind of stress the importance of continuing to go, continuing to support it. I'm very involved with the art museum and it's the main fundraiser that they do there. You know, it's a huge deal. It raises an enormous amount of money for art education in our area, which I think is critical. Um, But then also from another side of looking at Christmas Roundup and just going back to some of the things that I talked about earlier, having local markets like big local holiday markets are really important for small makers and small businesses and people that are just kind of trying to get started. That's really, that's what I started on was doing these markets, you know, going to a market, making things, taking them there, seeing how people respond to them. That's really the best way to get into it. And so I'm so glad that Amarillo has Christmas Roundup because it allows makers to have that platform. And I think that people don't think about that part of mm-hmm. it that much. It's more just kind of like this is a holiday, you know, market and we're going to go shop and it supports the art museum, but you're also supporting all of these businesses. And that will allow for diversity here and um, diversity between different businesses and things getting going. And it's just so important to have something like that. So that's what I want to endorse is just for people to keep going and I'll be there. So (laughs) come see me. (laughs) Becca White, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. And that concludes the show. First, thanks to Bivens Point for sponsoring the show. And thanks to Becca White for the interview. You can shop M Street Studios products at mstreetstudio.com. Look for them on Instagram. they got a great presence there, as we talked about. As usual, Angelina Marie edits every episode of Hey Amarillo, including this one. And finally, thanks to my executive producers, Chris Selda, Jason Burr, Wilson Lemieux, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Katie Linger, Daniel Davis, Josh Wood, Neil Nossiman, Patrick Burns, Ryan Pennington, and Wes Reeves. They all support the show through patreon.com slash heyamarello. And if you love the show, you can support it too. Thanks for listening. This has been episode 103. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>